0: Tonight's class, tonight's lecture is called Fulfilling Our Mount Sinai Marriage Vows with God Subtitle Feminizing the Universe So let's talk about this Shavuos We talk about the holiday of Shavuos And our sages refer to the Har Sinai, the Mount Sinai experience as a chuppah Um, The Talmud simply sees God holding the mountain over our head as coercion However, in Kabbalah, we talk about the mountain being an unbelievable expression of love, and the mountain itself, which was adorned with flowers, was a beautiful chuppah that God hoisted upon our head, and that was the night of our kiddushin. That was the night where the groom came to meet the bride and placed the finger on her finger, uh, the ring on her finger. So the question we're going to ask here, just primarily, is. You look in davening, you look in your prayer, especially in that of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the intense prayers. How do we refer to God? Avinu, Malkenu. Our father, our king. We never refer to God as our husband. And yet, all of a sudden, at the very birth of our people, at Mount Sinai, Hashem suddenly introduces a whole new type of relationship, that of a marriage. Why? And the real question is, what does a marriage have that the Avinu doesn't have and the Malkinu doesn't have? There's something lacking if God is our father and if God is our king. And because that's lacking, therefore, what does Hashem do? He introduces the ultimate relationship to us, which is that of marriage. And the obvious question is, why? What, what is there to gain with this marriage? What does marriage offer us that the Avinu doesn't, the Malkanu doesn't? Simply speaking what marriage offers us that a venu our father doesn't and our king doesn't is partnership. There's no partnership between the father and the child. There's no partnership between a king and his subjects. But when we talk about marriage we're introducing a partnership relationship here between God and us, us and God. Now let's talk about what this partnership is. First of all on a very practical level the Talmud talks about the woman's protection because she has the merit of learning Torah. And there's a question. What merit do the women have in learning Torah? Halachically speaking, do women have to learn Torah? Don't they have to learn Torah if they learn Torah even though they don't have to, but then that's not a mitzvah? So where where is that protection? And the Talmud gives a couple of answers. One of those answers is that she's a partner in every drop of study that she makes possible for her husband. Her husband can study because she makes it possible. So on the bare legal level, we look at a husband and a wife as partners where everything that the husband does, she's a partner in. Let's talk about the more deeper level. We talk about two half of souls becoming one, soulmates. There's a very interesting teaching from the Mizricha Magad, Rabdo Bear of Mizrich. He says, concerning the commandment that God gave Moses, and you shall make for yourself two chatzotzrot. What is chatzotzrot? chatzotzrot are trumpets. And only Moses was allowed to use that. When he passed away, it went with him into the mountain, and Joshua wasn't allowed to use that. So the Mazrit gives a very interesting, Hasidic, deep insight to what these trumpets are. He says, read the word as two words. If you break the Hebrew word for trumpets, which is Chatzotzrot, if you break it in half, what do you have? Chatzi Let's read what that means, half forms. Now let's go back to what God told Moses. And you shall make for yourself two half forms. What is God telling Moses? What God is telling Moses is that the Jew is a half a form, God is a half a form, and I'm giving you the commandment to bring those two half of forms together. And you shall make for yourself two half forms. There's another beautiful teaching which carries the same marriage lesson, relationship between God and us. When Moses was told by God, command the Jewish people to give half shekel. It says Moses was so, he just couldn't get it until God had no choice but to show him a half shekel of fire. And he said, Yitnu, this, pointing to that fiery coin, this is what you shall give. And the obvious question is, Moses didn't know what a half coin looked like, a half, uh, a half a dollar coin, a half a shekel coin looked like. What is Rashi telling us? He was so confused and mind boggled until God actually showed him and he said, ah, that's what you mean. No problem. So the Rebbe, blessed memory, gives an unbelievable explanation. It says Moses had a very simple issue. He knew the ruling in the Zohar. The Zohar says that God's presence never rests in anything but whole and complete. And thus Moses was confused by the sudden request for a half a shekel. He should have asked for a whole shekel because everything about God is only in the whole and the complete. Now that you understand what Moses' confusion was, we understand what the answer was. God told Moses I'm not asking for a half I'm asking for my other half and thus God showed him that I am a half a shekel the Jewish people are the other half a shekel and together we become one whole so we do find that intimate explanation where the Jewish people and God God and the Jewish people actually represent the deepest level of a marriage where two halves become one whole. And that is the partnership which we don't have with a father and a son. A father and a son is not two halves of one whole. And neither is a king and a subject. So we understand that the foundation of our people's relationship with God is all about marriage. And we made a vow at Mount Sinai. The words was actually the words I do. So much so that the Rebbe explains in Hayom Yom, a calendar in which the Rebbe has a message in each day. The Rebbe actually uses the words Torah and Mitzvot is the wedding band which God placed upon our finger as we became his wife. So the bottom line is that we need to understand if we made that vow to God to be his wife, what was that vow? What did we promise God to do? It's not any other partnership. The Talmud and Baba Basra talks about whole different laws concerning different types of partnerships. God specifically chose to be a husband and a wife partnership with us. He is the husband and we are his wife. So the question on the table here is really, what does a wife do for a husband? If we can understand that, then we can understand what our vow, our marriage vow was. Yes, not a very sane thing for a man in a room full of women to ask. Um, But trust me, I don't mean it in any belittlement or attacking. It's not, uh, I'm not telling you. So what do you bring into our marriage? That's not what I'm asking you. What I'm actually asking of you is to really question the deepest part of a marriage. What is it that a wife gives a husband that before that the husband is called only a half? The wife steps into the picture and gives her husband this one thing. We're not talking about the cooking, the cleaning, and you know, fiddle on the roof, right? Do I love you? I've been doing your laundry. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the to-do list. There's one very deep core thing that only a wife can give her husband, which transforms the husband from a half into a whole. That is what we're really going to discuss tonight. Because if we can figure out what that is, we can understand the vow that we each made to God at Mount Sinai to be his wife and to fulfill our wife duty to our husband, capital H. So that's what we're going to explore tonight. So who are you gonna turn to? We're gonna turn to the wisest of all men, King Solomon. And what does King Solomon have to say about it? He actually has a lot to say about it. He wrote a beautiful poem about it. You hear that poem every Friday night. Eshet Chayil, woman of valor. But I don't want to turn into the words. I don't want to get into the translation of the whole list of what he says a wife does for the husband. I want to go to the core issue of this eshet chayil Because why do we decide to say eshet chayil on Friday night? There's three reasons why the husband says eshet chayil on Friday night. One is the most simplistic reason, which is he's saying thank you to his wife who just created The entire Shabbos table, which they are about to all enjoy. So you begin with singing the Eshet Chayel. Simply thanking the wife for making Shabbat, Shabbat for him. Another interpretation is that the Jewish people are the wife of God. And that's what we're actually singing about. We're singing to our husband about ourselves. But then there's a third interpretation. The third interpretation is that Shabbat is the wife. Shabbat is the eshet chayel. I want to go ahead and safely turn to that interpretation. Cause if we can understand what Shabbat does for creation, we can understand what the wife does for the husband. We can understand what we promised God. So let's back up a moment. Let's talk about the seven days of creation, which is questionable, right? We all grew up learning that there's six days of creation. But believe it or not, that in very specific teachings, we call it seven days of creation. But those seven days of creation is a question. Because what do we say every single Shabbat? Uvo Shabbat, on that day Shabbat, he rested from all his work. So how do we call it seven days of creation? What was created on Shabbat? We don't find it anywhere. We talk about the six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, he rested. So what are those secret places in the teachings of our sages tell us that there was seven days of creation? But in order to explain to that, we need to back up a little bit, okay? Creation, the Zohar tells us that creation was made in six days, but not what you and I call six days, but they refer to as the supernal days. What are the supernal days? So I'm not familiar with how much... Hasidus, Tanya, I don't know you people. I know some of you, right? <laughs> but I'm just going to give the basic interpretation and later, if need be, by Q&A, if you have any issues that I went too quickly on, please bring it up. The, si- the seven supernal days refer to the seven second half of the Sfirot, the latter Sfirot. There are ten emanations, three intellects, and seven emotions. So when we talk about the seven supernal days that God created the world with, we're talking about the seven emotional emanation. The seven emotional emanation breaks into two categories. First category is the six male predatory, which we call in Kabbalah the small faces. The seventh emanation is called Shabbat. The seventh emanation is kingship, which we refer to in Kabbalah as the feminine mystique. Now, if we can figure out What the kingship does, the feminine mystique, does to the six male predator small faces, then we figure out in its greatest, highest source, the secret of marriage. What the wife does for the husband. Now that we understand that, let's go back to this question I asked you from the Talmud. Why do we call it seven days of creation when we always call it six days of creation? And the Talmud gives a very beautiful answer. Ba Shabbat, Ba Menucha. Shabbos created rest. The six days did not understand the experience of rest. The male predator emotions does not, it's not capable of rest. So much so that if you learn the Rashi in Genesis, it seems mind-boggling. God is actually concerned not to cause any jealousy amongst the six days of creation. So much so that God actually balances out how many days he spends on creating celestial beings and how many days he spends on creating terrestrial beings. Not to bring jealousy amongst creations. We all know the famous quote that God says, let us make man. Who's the us? God alone makes man. Rashi tells us that Hashem didn't want the angels to be jealous. So he actually had a meeting with them discussing the creation of mankind. So these six days are really problematic days. They don't understand inner peace. Why so? You mentioned whoever introduced me mentioned I spoke here a couple of years ago. I spoke about this exact topic. So we'll just bring it up again, literally in two lines. Let us discuss the most controversial blessing a man makes, which is what? Shalom, Asani, Isha. Blessed are you, God, who has not made me a woman. What do women do? So in Chabad, there's one or two customs. Literally, in Chabad, depending on which rabbi you ask, and most of the rabbis will tell you to do what your mother did, but there's two customs in Chabad. One custom is that the woman says nothing. The other custom is that she makes the bracha she asani kirtzono for you made me according your will according to your will Now let's rise up from the whole, well how do you say such a blessing let's look at the real difference between these two blessings to understand the difference between a man and a woman and why men are not capable on their own to have true serenity and inner peace why because look how a man defines himself the, mind, the man defines who he is by what he's not. Blessed are you, God, for making me. But that's not what he said. Because the only understanding he has of making me is what I'm not. I know what I am because I know what I'm not. That is the predator's mindset. That is the, that is the paradigm that the predator works from. He defines himself only by what he does not have. And that's why the male predator is always focused on protecting that his harem belongs only to him. He constantly is focused on his territory. Forgive me, but as you know, animals will urinate all over a territory just to say, this is mine. I'm proclaiming this as mine. And constantly the male predator is focused on how do I expand my territory and how do I conquer what I don't have yet? A creature who cannot define himself by what he is, but only by what he's not, will never have serenity or inner peace. It's just impossible. Let's look at the woman. The woman does not define herself by what she's not. The blessing she makes is for making me according to your will. I'm thanking you for what I am. That is the only realm where serenity can ever exist in. Being happy and comfortable in your own skin. Thanking God for who you are. Focusing on what you do have. That's what defines me. It's not that I don't have what he has, so that's what defines me. Or I drive a car that he doesn't drive and that's who I am when I pull up the shoe. That focus of the difference of these two blessings explained to us exactly what Shabbat gave the six male predatory days and you can't even blame the six days for having this jealousness and fighting because they were created within and by that male predatory mindset paradigm i don't know if you're familiar or not but there's actually a very interesting study it actually goes back to 1902 It it fills itself out in the book, The Secret, and it goes further and further. If you probably read the book, The Secret, the movie, watch The Secret. There's a very interesting concept called the blue ocean and the red ocean. The red ocean defines itself very simple. It's a business format that says, every customer that you have, I don't have. So I've got to somehow get your customers. The blue ocean says, the source of sustenance is infinite. And thus, God has enough for everyone. So I will find my niche and I will work on that, attracting my customers. The male paradigm versus the female paradigm. If your life is about Shaloh Asani, you can't have the blue ocean mindset. If your focus is Shaloh Asani kirtso, no. So then I can live within that blue ocean paradigm. So now we understand what it means when God said that on the seventh day, I did create something. I created something that solidified everything else. How long can a, a, a creation endure when all it lives on is not looking in my house but looking into the other person's house? How long can a society survive if everyone's defining himself by the other person's car, the other person's house, the other person's dress, the other person's clothing? Thus, bar Shabbat, bar the male predator, because he is programmed to be a predator, which is defined by the hunting, defined by what don't I have yet. Let's expand. That creature can never have serenity or inner peace. But the feminine mystique is all about give me peace. And what is the peace? The piece is the feminine mystique of being able to tell the male predator, stop, surrender, just give up the fight. Let's live within who we are. Let's just get comfortable with that. Let's have a comfortable relationship with God. It's not about the gimme, gimme, gimme God, or it's not about I can't believe, look what he's driving, that schmobo and me, this is what I have to live with. That's the, way the ma- that's the way the male mind thinks. It's programmed to think that way. Kabbalistically, it's programmed to think that way. Malchut is the only power to be able to be comfortable within who she is. That's the difference between the sun and the moon. The sun has to p- define itself by its powerful power of heat and light, and the moon is just comfortably there. There was a moment of difficulty And according to Kabbalah, that's not tonight's lecture, but that is the deepest secret of what happened between God and the moon, because it seems to be that God acted like an insecure teacher who was caught with a mistake. The moon tells God, how can you create two rulers over one kingdom? And it seems to be like God snapped at it. You're right. Make yourself small. But that's not what happened. What actually happened was that was a beautiful moment where God and Malchut had a very keen understanding of the beauty of the feminine mystique, being comfortable with who you are, being within yourself. Now that we understand that the power of Malchut is to bring Minucha, rest, peace, serenity, stop the fighting, stop the competition, males don't understand that. But the woman brings that to the male. Malchut brings that to the six working days. And then you have a true marriage. That's the wholeness that only a wife can give her husband, something he's not capable of doing by himself. So originally, when Mrs. Schusterman called me, texted me, the first name I chose for this class is Mashiach, Feminizing the Feminization of the Universe. I think you can now understand what that title stands for. You see, what happens is that by the Mount Sinai experience, there wasn't a nisu'in, a marriage. There was an erisin, which was betrothed. mikudeshetli. That's not when you become a wife. That's why, halachically you don't have to wear a shaito by your wedding. If under the b'chupah you become a full-blown wife, you would have to wear a shaito right then and there. But what happens is that under the chuppah, you only become erosin. You become betrothed unto your husband. Then, by the next morning, there's after the consummation, that's when it's a full-blown wife. The nisuin, the, the marriage is going to take place when Mashiach comes. But Mount Sinai only gave us that power of being betrothed. Now, in between those two points, in between the point of the Matan Torah, and Mashiach, that is what tonight's topic is all about, because that's the point where we have to fulfill our marriage vow to God. And by fulfilling our marriage vow to God, that's how we bring Mashiach. So let's talk about Mashiach, because Mashiach would be the ultimate female, the ultimate wife. What is the first and most important thing that everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike, know about Mashiach? It's the verse in Isaiah. What is the verse in Isaiah that we all know? And we shall take our swords, right? Then we'll turn it into plowshares, and there will be no more war. Mashiach is all about that feminization of the universe. Stop the competition. Stop the killing. That's not what it's about. So the whole beauty of Mashiach is the fulfillment of what started When we made a vow to God, what was our vow to God? Our vow to God was that we will feminize the entire universe. Now let's understand what that means in a real historical way. Share with me for a moment, just a quick overview of the history of mankind, starting from when Cain killed Abel. Follow through the Jewish people, follow through the experience of the Torah. Religion, relationship with God, relationship to each other. It has always been the brutal war and murder of exile. That's what exile is. Were I to be poetic tonight, I would tell you that exile is the man of war. Mashiach is the woman of peace. Now watch what goes on through the history. The entire history, the way God created the world was it was really a male's world. From day number one, right after they were kicked out of the garden at Eden, what happens? There's competition, there's murder, there's jealousy. Cain can't define himself. Why can't he define himself? Because all he knows is that God did accept Abel's sacrifice, but didn't accept his. Shalom Sani. He couldn't come to terms with that. He couldn't find inner peace. Go through the entire history of the world. And you'll see that what we have been doing, actually, is moving from the male predator war to the female understanding of peace. We used to have outright brutal bloodshed. Today we have sanctions, negotiations. Let's talk about the most important battlefield that there is. In my humble opinion, it's the only battlefield where real wars are ever fought. And that is the classroom. Now, I don't mean it the way you're thinking. Because the change of a world will never happen through bombs. You're gonna explode, they're gonna go underground, and what are you gonna have? Eventually they're gonna resurface. We've had that over and over and over. The only true war that's being fought in the world is in classrooms where we're changing minds and perceptions. That's the only change that really takes place. You can bomb, you can this, they'll keep on coming up. If it isn't the Hezbollah, it's the ISIS, it'll keep on going. The only real change, the only real war that we're battling for God at all is in our classrooms. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the days of old. It was very, very straightforward. (laughs) I'm going to give a little secret. I'm old enough to know that. You people may have read about it. But the classroom used to be very simple. It was male suppression. We're going to break the student into an obedient child. That's what it was. You held your fingers like this. He took the ruler. That's what it was. They embarrassed you. Put on the dunce cap. Teacher had some very sharp words. That's what happened. I mean, I'll tell you a personal nightmare that happened with one of my kids. One of my kids had a male principal, and the male principal wanted to subdue him. He is a chip off the old block, quite a rebellious little boy. And the teacher told him, do I look like Billam? I didn't get it. I asked my son, I I don't get it. What's he saying? Ta! He's calling me a talking ASS. That was the once upon a time classroom. Look what's going on now in the world of education. We've gone from suppressing to transforming from the male predator to the female mystique of kingship. Look what's really happening in today's classrooms. The entire world of education has flipped over only because we're getting much closer to the days of the wedding. We've kept our promise to God. Look how rabbis talk. Tell me another leader in the history of the Jewish people like the Rebbe. It was never about breaking. Never about breaking. So much so that I've actually witnessed the Rebbe telling his gabayim, these people that were pushing away a certain lady, The the lady wasn't stopping. She was just talking to the Rebbe in French and Hebrew, arguing about something that happened between the Rebbe and her husband. This was in public. And the Gabais and everyone tried to pull her away. And the Rebbe turned around and said, Leave her alone. Just leave her alone. Let her do what she needs to do. Let her talk to me. That was unprecedented. When I was a kid, it was very simple. When I came home, if I got kicked out of class, or let's be more honest, when I got slapped across the face by my teacher, I didn't tell my parents. Because I knew that the first thing, I'd get another one. Because if the teacher did it, they were right. That's gone today. That is gone. I shouldn't say gone. But mainstream education today, we have kept our promise to God. We have feminized the universe. It's no more the insecurity and competition and battle and jealousness of Shalom Asani. That was our marriage vow to God. That is what we promised God at Mount Sinai. We will take the world from the arrogance which needs to be suppressed and subdued and broken and turn it into the feminine kingship. And as you all learned in Hasidus, what does feminine kingship do? Kingship is connected to the supernal crown. You don't get to where you get to by breaking and killing. What did God tell King David? No, you can't build my house. You've never killed a person in vain, but you've killed. You can't build my house. Thank you for putting the plans together. Thank you for running the beautiful building campaign, but you will not build my house. Why not? Because you're a male predator. Your son, he's a feminine mystique. He's going to build my house for me. That's what it's all about. You know, it's interesting, I'll share with you a word that I heard by my daughter's graduation. And uh, the lady, the girl who was the valedictorian stood up and said an unbelievable line. She said that she heard from a great Hasidic master that Pinchas is Elijah, but Pinchas was never a, a, a leader, and Elijah was. You know why? Because Pinchas brought his point across by killing. Elijah, the prophet, didn't. He brought together the people and said, "Watch and see the greatness of God, and choose your way." That's what we promise God. We promise God that we're going to move away from the brutal ways of civilization under the male predator. We promise to be his wife. We promise to bring inner peace into his world. So, let's talk about in closing. A little chutzpah what I'm going to do right now, because those of you who don't know or probably will know, is that I'm in the middle of a process of a divorce. So, who am I to go ahead and tell you the secret of a marriage? But I'm going to beg to differ about that being chutzpedik because I can tell you that I've done more thought about marriage and the secrets of marriage in the last four years than any woman or man that you know. It's just part of the painful process. So I want to share with you what this lecture tonight has to do with the secret of marriage. Husband and wife. What does the wife promise the husband under the chuppah? What's the vow that you make? It's very simple any marriage where both of them the husband and the wife was pulled into the male predator's sandbox of fighting over the borderlines of dominance with each one urinating over the entire relationship to claim their territory you will not have a happy marriage the happy marriage is again i'm talking out to a room full of women so for me to go ahead and tell you what man is supposed to do would be wasting your time and my time. I do that when I talk to men. But let's all go ahead and understand from my perspective at least, what is the woman's vow under the chuppah? The woman's vow is to bring to the man something he is not capable of experiencing by his own. And that is that she's promising that in rather than getting into the sandbox and fighting with him the way men do, she will bring the Shabbat into the relationship. Now let me tell you what's so hard for you women in experiencing that. Is because the man doesn't even know that he wants that because on his own he doesn't even know that that exists. Let me tell you a little secret about men. From that moment where the doctor turned him over and slapped him in his tush, he has been nurtured only in a world of competition. There's a winner and there's a loser. That's all the man understands. And with that paradigm, he walks into a marriage. Now, the woman promises that I'm going to turn your world upside down because we're not going to have a one winner and one loser. Because I am not bowing down to be the loser in this relationship. So let's rethink strategy here. That's what really goes on in a real marriage where the two are communicating. So go explain a man that doesn't even understand that it doesn't have to be a winner and a loser, that there's something I promised you to do, and that's to bring Shabbos into your six-day life. We're going to turn this life and this relationship into a seven-day week, where Shabbat is the most dominant day of the week. And because the man doesn't understand that, you have no idea how many times rabbis or rebbits are sitting in marriage counseling, and the discussion is, is a male's world discussion. What does she bring to the relationship? She's a deficit and the this and that. And she doesn't work. She can't even do carpool. That's what this conversation is going on. But that's a male's world. Because well, again, we're trying to define value and identity by the shelo asani. And go talk to a man and try to explain to him it doesn't have to be that way. But that's what you women promised under the chuppah because you women and only you women can do that for your husband. It's the only way to feminize a relationship, to stop the fighting, to stop the war. So, just a practical suggestion. When you find yourself in the heat of a male predator argument, which we all know that ugliness, I would suggest women just stop and say, I need some time alone right now. And when you go to spend some time alone, don't spend it licking your wounds or worrying over your hurt feelings. What I would suggest is a deep breath and say exactly these words. Absolutely not. I've never agreed to be pulled and dragged into your male predator world. What I did promise is to shine some Shabbat light into our home and into our relationship where you can restructure yourself and remember who you really are and what the feminine mystique is and what we promise God and what we promise the universe to bring the fighting and that jealousy and all of that to an end and to just define the world by malchut, by true inner peace and serenity, then we're ready to take on the day. People, thank you very much and may we accept and receive the Torah internally and with joy. Thank you.